0: Well, good day. My name is Ben, one of the staff workers here at CU, and it's great to be with you guys as we look at the Bible together. Uh, Today, we're continuing in our series uh, in the book of Deuteronomy. Um, So, if you've got a, a Bible in front of you, please do keep it open there to Deuteronomy 15. And Deuteronomy, as we've seen this semester, is a series of speeches that Moses made about 1400 years before Jesus came onto the scene. Speeches that Moses gave as God's people, Israel, were preparing to enter the promised land. If you've been with us in earlier weeks, you'll remember that we saw that in Moses' second and longest speech, there are two main sections, general commands in chapters 5 to 11, and then detailed commands in chapters 12 to 26. And you could sum up those general commands uh, at the most basic level as love God, love people. We saw that last week, uh, the, the Ten Commandments are all about helping Israel in practice to know what it looks like to love God and to love people. That's the big picture view of what they're pushing towards. And then the purpose of chapters 12 to 26 then is to flesh out in greater detail what would that, that would actually look like in ancient Israelite society. And so last week we did Love God Extended Edition, looking at chapters 12 to 26, and about what they teach us about that vertical aspect of our relationship, about what it looks like to love God, looking at tithing in particular, as an example of that. And then today we're looking at Love People, love people Extended Edition. What, what do chapters 12 to 26 show us about that horizontal level, about what it looks like for us to love our neighbour as ourselves? Now, right at the outset, you might be wondering, well, why bother with all this extra detail? Why does God need to give them all these detailed commands about how to love people? I mean, isn't it as simple as love is love? Just tell people, love. Let them figure it out for themselves. Why doesn't God just do that? Well, a big part of the reason for that is that there's a difference between wanting to love your neighbour and actually loving them. There's a big difference between wanting what's best for them and actually doing what's best for them. In 2009, a book was published called When Helping Hurts, How to Alleviate Poverty Without Hurting the Poor and Yourself. And what this book points out is that it's very possible for you to have a good motive and to want to help the poor, but you actually end up hurting them. So, maybe motivated by love, you give some secondhand clothing or shoes to charity so that instead of being wasted, they can help someone in need in a developing country. But what if that just floods their economy with mountains of clothing and shoes, destroying their local economy because local producers can no longer sell anything that they make because they have to compete with stuff that's free? And it also destroys their environment because there's suddenly these truckloads of unwanted second-hand clothing. This is an actual picture of a mountain built up over years of unwanted second-hand clothing in Ghana. It is just the tip of the iceberg. We might feel good, oh, buy this pair of shoes and an extra pair of shoes will be given to someone in need. We might be motivated by life, but is it actually helping them or is it actually hurting them? So no, having good motive is not enough, is it? It's not enough just to say love people and leave it at that. We actually need to know how to love people, to know what's actually for their good and what isn't. And so today we're going to narrow in on Deuteronomy 15, where God gives two strategies for loving one's neighbour by addressing poverty in ways that actually help the poor rather than hurting them. So let's have a look at them together. First up, strategy number one is seven-year debt cancellation that you can see in verses 1 to 11 of the passage if you've got it in front of you. So have a look in your Bibles with me at Deuteronomy 15, verses 1 to 3. It says, At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how it is to be done. Every creditor shall cancel any loan they have made to a fellow Israelite. They shall not require payment from anyone among their own people. Because the Lord's time for cancelling debts has been proclaimed. You may require payment from a foreigner, but you must cancel any debt your fellow Israelite owes you. So there's strategy number one. At the end of every seven years, any Israelite who was in debt would be released. Their loan would be cancelled just like that. It sounds pretty good. Now, you might be wondering, is this a law that Christians should be keeping today? After all, the language at verse 1 is pretty direct, isn't it? I mean, have a look at it. It It says, every year you must cancel debts. And so I might be here reading this as a Christian thinking, wow, this is saying that I should actually cancel all debts every seven years. But we should pause before jumping to that conclusion, because we've got to remember that, as we saw last week, Uh, God's people today are not under the law because it's been fulfilled by Jesus. The law is not uh, timeless and eternally binding on people. It was specifically given by God to a specific people at a specific time in history, ancient Israel. And so the you in verse 1 is addressed to them, not us. So instead of thinking about how the law applies to us directly, first and foremost, we should rather think about how it applied to them and then see if there are any principles that might apply to us indirectly as well. So think about what a law like this would have meant for them in ancient Israelite society. Imagine a society where every seven years all debts got cancelled. Sounds pretty good to anyone who's just signed on to a 30-year mortgage. But of course, it's much more serious than that. People often talk about how the poor get poorer and the rich get richer. And a huge part of that is because of debt. If the poor owe money to the rich and that interest just keeps piling up, then the divide between the rich and the poor just keeps growing. Because the poor are paying interest and the rich are receiving interest, and that divide just gets bigger and bigger. But imagine living in a society where every seven years, everyone hits the big, giant, red reset button. Some people will still be better off than others, unavoidably, but for anyone who is trapped in debt, it gives them a fresh start. When you actually stop and think about that, that is revolutionary. To have a whole society shaped like that, it's a game-changer, an incredibly powerful strategy for alleviating and addressing poverty. Because debt is a powerful force that keeps poor people poor. Check out this article from Al Jazeera in 2019. The spiralling debt trapping Pakistan's brick kiln workers. What starts off as a small loan ends up trapping generations into bonded labour. The article explains uh, that initially, if a person falls ill or has some medical bill that they can't afford, uh, they have no choice but to take a loan out for it. But they then become bonded to the loan maker, to the creditor, and forced to work in these brick kilns in really harsh conditions, making these mud bricks in backbreaking conditions for over 12 hours a day to slowly repay their debt. But often they get paid so little that the interest accrues faster than they can pay it off. And so the debt just keeps growing month after month, year after year. And they're trapped. And often the debt is passed onto the children as well. So sometimes multiple generations are sucked into this spiralling debt trap. And do you know how many people are trapped like this? about 3.5 million in Pakistan alone, and globally it's about 25 million. 25 million, to put that uh, into context, you know we, we think about the, the great horror of the transatlantic slave trade that happened for over 100 years between uh, Africa and North and South America. Over that whole period, about 12 million people were transported as slaves. Double that number... Are trapped in debt slavery right now in our world today. And this is 2022. This is not some past thing, this is happening right now. And that's an extreme example, but even in less extreme ways, debt has intergenerational effects, even on people in developed countries like the US and Australia, too. People who fall into debt and they'll never be able to pay it off, and it just grows and grows. Children are shaped by that, living in a home where they don't have enough to make ends meet because they've got this big debt hanging over them. So when you realise what a powerful force ongoing debt can be for harm, can you see why this seventh-year debt cancellation is such a game-changer? Why it was a powerful strategy put in place by God to address poverty in ancient Israelite society? Now, of course, it's no magic silver bullet That alone is not enough to stop poverty from happening, especially in the six years in between. Which means that in addition to this high-level strategy, they also needed heart-level generosity. Not just high-level strategy, but also heart-level generosity. Have a look in your Bibles with me where we see this from verse 7. It says, If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted, or tight-fisted towards them. Rather be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Be careful not to harbour this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year for cancelling debts, is near. So that you do not show ill-will toward the needy among your fellow Israelites and give them nothing. Then they may appeal to the Lord against you and you will be found guilty of sin. Give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. Can you see that it's... I sometimes today, when it comes to poverty, people argue about whether it's about systems or whether it's about individuals. And Deuteronomy 15 just says, yes. It's both about high-level strategy but also about heart-level generosity. There's so much that we could say more on that, but for the sake of time, let's push on to the second strategy. The first one is seven-year debt cancellation. The second is seven-year servanthood. Now, this one is a little more controversial and easily misunderstood, but have a look in your Bibles with me at Deuteronomy 15, where we see uh, this from verses 12 to 15. Have a look and see what it says. Deuteronomy 15, verse 12. If any of your people... Hebrew men or women, sell themselves to you and serve you six years. In the seventh year, you must let them go free. And when you release them, do not send them away empty handed. Supply them liberally from your flock, your threshing floor and your winepress. Give to them as the Lord your God has blessed you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. That means bought you out from slavery. That is why I'm giving you this command today. Now, this is one of those proof texts that people use to dismiss the Bible. Often it's claimed that the Bible endorses slavery, and people will take one quick look at a passage like this and write off the whole Bible as evil. But I think that's a big mistake. Because when you actually stop and think carefully, I think that's a total misunderstanding of what this passage is actually saying. Is Deuteronomy 15 endorsing slavery? Well, to respond to that, we've got to understand two key things. First of all, regulating something is not the same as endorsing it. You can see this on your handout if you've got it there as well. Regulating something is not the same as endorsing it. A lot of people assume that if God's law regulates a certain practice or behaviour, it must be endorsing it and saying it's a great thing. So there are laws about slavery and they interpret that as, slavery is great, go for it, guys. But can you think about why that might be a bad assumption to make? Even if you look at the legal system here in Australia, we regulate lots of things that we don't endorse. We have laws about murder. If a person commits murder, then this is what you're to do. It's not endorsing it. It's just regulating it. It's showing us what to do if murder takes place. And the same is true of the Old Testament law. Uh, for example, in Deuteronomy 24, there are laws regulating divorce. And some people have looked at that and said, hey, divorce is fine. It's in the law. We can divorce our wives whenever we want to. That was actually a, a live issue in Jesus' day as they looked at the law. It said, it says you can divorce, so we can just do it. This is God saying it's okay. But in Matthew 19, when some Jewish experts in the law ask Jesus about divorce, he says, don't do it. And they're perplexed. They say, what do you mean, Jesus? Check out their response. When Jesus says, don't divorce, this is Matthew 19 from verse 7. This is how they respond. Well, why then, Jesus, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? They're saying, ha, gotcha, Jesus. Moses commanded divorce in Deuteronomy 24. But check out how Jesus replies from verse 8. Jesus replied, Moses permitted, not commanded. He permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. He's referring to Genesis 1 and 2, God's creation design. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. What's Jesus saying? Even though the law of of Moses permitted divorce, it is not commanding or commending or endorsing it or saying it's a good thing to do. It simply regulates it. And even that is only because their hearts were hard. And this is what we saw a few weeks ago in Thursday public meeting, that while God's character is is perfect and eternal, his perfect moral character of love and self-giving, the law is an application of God's moral character to an imperfect group of people in an imperfect fallen world. The law reflects God's love and justice, but it does so recognising they live in a world that's fallen. And so the law is full of moral idealism, ideals of how we ought to live in a perfect self-giving, that the best-case scenario of what we should strive for, but it's also full of moral realism, Dealing with the reality of sinful life and how we fail to live in light of God's perfect love. Provisions for when we, we, we broke his law. Divorce and slavery are examples of that. If you want another example of this, this is not in the PowerPoint, but I think we've got time for this. I thought we were going to have to cut it out, but I think we've got time for it. Have a look at Jeremiah 15 verse 4. Look at what it says. However, there should be no poor among you, for the land the Lord your God is giving you uh, to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you if only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all his commands that we are given you today. That's God's ideal. Should there be any poor in the land? No, you shouldn't even have to worry about this because if you just do what God has asked you to do and generously share with each other, you won't even have poverty. But then what does verse 7 say? Verse 4 has said, you won't even have, there shouldn't even be poor people in the land. Then verse 7 says, If there is a poor man among your brothers, dot dot dot, then what does verse eleven say? There will always be poor people in the land. God's like, if you just obey me, there'll never be anyone poor. But you Israelites, I know how stiff-necked you are. I know the human heart. There, there always will be. God's giving them the ideal of what they should strive for, what things should be like. But he also recognizes our weakness and the hardness of our hearts. God loves his people enough to meet them where they're at. It doesn't mean that divorce or things like that are God's ideal. To regulate something doesn't always mean to endorse it. That's the first thing to realise. The second is that the word slavery can refer to very different realities. When someone says slavery, does the Bible endorse slavery? It's worth asking, what exactly do you mean by slavery? Slavery. This might sound like nitpicking, but it's really not. Because most people today, when they hear the word slavery, they think of the transatlantic slave trade so prevalent in the 18th century. And that kind of slavery was abominable on every level. Kidnapping people and forcing them into slavery. Racism. Horrible oppression. Treating people as property. Owning them for life and being able to treat them however you want. It was horrible on so many levels, which is why Christians like William Wilberforce led the charge over decades to have it abolished. But that kind of slavery is completely different to what's described here in Deuteronomy 15, and indeed Deuteronomy as a whole. Let's look at four key differences. The first difference is that the servanthood in Deuteronomy is not racism, but among fellow Hebrews. One of the great evils of the transatlantic slave trade was its deep connections to racism. Many of the white slaveholders saw their African slaves as inferior because of the colour of their skin. And that is a great evil. The Bible teaches that all people, regardless of the colour of our skin, are made in the image of God and therefore bear inherent value and dignity and worth. Make no mistake, racism is a great evil. But what's described here in Deuteronomy 15 is not that. Here, the colour of a person's skin is irrelevant. Notice that in verse 12, it refers to them as your people. And the Hebrew word there is literally the word for brother. It's saying, It says, if one of your brothers, a male or female Hebrew, sells themselves to you. That's the literal word it's using it's emphasising that they should be like family to you. They're not an inferior class of human. You're to see them as an equal, a family member, a fellow kinsman, who happens to be going through hard times and therefore needs help. That's the first key difference. Not racism, but among fellow Hebrews. The second key difference is that this is not forced slavery, but willing servanthood. The Bible actually explicitly condemns, in both Old and New Testament, what's called man-stealing, that is, kidnapping someone to force them into slavery. Uh, That's the kind of kidnapping and forced slavery that happened all the time during the transatlantic slave trade, and it's explicitly forbidden even in the Old Testament. Exodus 21.16 says this, Anyone who kidnaps someone is to be put to death whether the victim has been sold off in some other slave market or is still in the kidnapper's possession as their slave. Kidnapping someone and forcing them into slavery receives the death penalty. That's how seriously God takes it. This, in Deuteronomy 15, on the other hand, was willing servanthood. Verse 12 makes clear they would choose to sell themselves to someone to serve them as their servant. Now, to our modern ears, this might sound really strange. Why would anyone want to do this? And this is the thing, although we don't like to think it, as 21st century Westerners, we're not actually very good at putting ourselves in the shoes of other cultures to understand things from their perspective. But it's really important to actually think, why would someone choose to sell themselves to serve someone for a number of years? Well, you've got to understand that in the ancient world, there was no central government welfare. In the ancient world, if you got down on your luck or there was a famine, a lot of people just starved to death. That was the harsh reality. It's a very different world to what we experience today. We're not just talking a few percentage points. Significant percentages of of the population would just starve if there was a famine. But one way that you could get more stability and security was to be a servant in a household. Because think about it. If you were just a hired hand, a day labourer, as most people were, you have way less security. If someone doesn't want to hire you that day, you don't eat. But if you're a servant in a household, you're under their roof and protection. that are food stored up to provide for all the family members and servants. So people actually chose to do this, and not just in Bible times, but even we've got other documents from Greco-Roman sources, where people would choose to sell themselves into this for greater security. So that's the second key difference. This is not for slavery, but willing servanthood. Third, uh, they're not property, but rather people to be cared for. In the transatlantic slave trade, uh, slaves were seen as property. And this is actually what slavery was like in ancient Rome as well. Do you know what percentage of people in ancient Rome were slaves? If you had to take a stab. It's not too far off. 25 to 33% is the best estimate for how much of the Roman population were slaves. One in three to one in four people. And under Roman law, slaves had zero personal rights and were literally regarded as the property of their masters. They could be bought, sold, beaten, sexually abused, or killed at will. It was horrific but that couldn't be any more different from the servanthood in Deuteronomy. Here they are not property, but people to be cared for and loved. As we saw in Deuteronomy 15.12, servants are regarded as brothers. Earlier in semester, we saw the Sabbath law in Deuteronomy 5 that explicitly says that your male and female servants are to rest each day and share in the Sabbath rest just as everyone else did. And we could look at lots of other examples in the law as well. They had rights. They would be cared for and treated as fellow kinsmen and loved. Not property, but people to be cared for is the third uh, thing to note. And the fourth and final contrast from the forms of slavery most people imagine is that servanthood in Deuteronomy is not lifelong oppression, but a pathway out of poverty. Now, the key verses here for this are Deuteronomy 15, verses 12 to 14. Um, so we'll look at those again. I'm going to read them out. But as we do, just to prime you, notice as we read it that the whole system of seven-year servanthood is actually a purposeful pathway to take someone who's experiencing poverty and has no security, feels trapped, to actually give them family, employment, support systems, to get them back on their own two feet so that by the end of that six-year time period, they're ready to be independent and self-sufficient again. Have that in your mind and see if you can see that as I read again from verse 12. It says, If any of your people, Hebrew men or women, sell themselves to you and serve you six years, in the seventh year you must let them go free. And when you release them, do not send them away empty-handed. Supply them liberally from your flock, your threshing floor and your winepress. Give to them as the Lord your God has blessed You. when you actually think about what this is doing this is a remarkable and empowering pathway out of poverty so do you see why it's such a big mistake to look at a passage like this and just say oh the Bible endorses slavery without actually engaging our minds critically and thoughtfully to think through what this passage is actually saying because in many ways this is actually a far more effective and empowering empowering and humanising way of addressing poverty than even what we do in the 21st century Western world today. We might, you know, give some second-hand clothes or shoes off to some charity off on the other side of the world, not even thinking about whether or not it's actually helping people or harming them. Or think about even within our own society, if someone is homeless in Australia today, what is usually done to take care of them? At worst, they're ignored, left to fend for themselves. At best, we might give them some handouts, pay some money for someone else to put up a shelter where they're out of sight and out of mind. But how different would it be if we actually welcomed them into our household as a brother or sister? welcomed into the family where they're treated well, given employment so they have the dignity of work, given support systems within a household so they can find their feet, get back on track. At the end of six years, we generously give them money and resources so they can be independent and self-sufficient, blessing them as the Lord has blessed us. How much more effective and humanising and empowering that would be? In fact, in ancient Israelite society, this system was so good... They actually had to come up with laws for what to do when the servant didn't want to leave. Check it out, verse 16. But if your servant says to you, I don't want to leave you because he loves you and your family and is well off with you, then take an awl and push it through his earlobe into the door and he will become your servant for life. Do the same for your female servant. Do not consider it a hardship to set your servant free because their service to you these six years has been worth twice as much as that of a hired hand and the Lord your God will bless you in everything you do. If you're looking at uh, that and uh, freaking out, like what's an all? I looked it up, it's just like a tiny point thing. It's basically how you you do an earring hole back then. So you just get a little earring so that you know, okay, this is my way of marking, I'm with you guys for life. But imagine that. Imagine someone saying, I don't want to leave. I love you. You and your family have become like my family. I'm well off with you. I don't want to leave. You know, they lived in a very different context to us today. But I can't help thinking that this is a far more effective and humanising and empowering way of addressing poverty than even so much of what we do today. So these laws were for Israel, not for us. So we're not bound by these laws. But there are principles here that we would be wise to learn from, about how to help in ways that don't hurt, about how to help in ways that actually humanise and empower the poor. And if we had more time, we could unpack the more, uh, that more and think creatively about the many ways that we could apply these principles in our world today. But for now, let me just suggest one practical, concrete way that we can help the poor in a way that really helps. Earlier, I mentioned the Pakistani brick-kiln workers who are trapped in debt slavery, three million of them in Pakistan alone, and the vast majority uh, are Christians. The Al Jazeera article says they are are religious minorities. It doesn't actually name them as Christians, Uh, but you do any research anywhere else, the vast majority of them are Christians who are persecuted in that country as a religious minority. But an organisation called Barnabas Aid raises money to pay off their debts in full allowing the parents to go uh, to keep on working while the children, instead of helping their parents work in those brick kilns, can instead go to school. They also provide vocational training in things such as sewing uh, to, uh, so that the children have skills to work to do things other than brick making as they grow up. They do adult literacy classes and other services as well to empower them help them get back on their own two feet. And Barnabas 8 has already freed well over 1,000 families from debt bondage already. It's just a drop in the ocean when there are 3 million people who are experiencing that in Pakistan alone, but it's a good start. Uh, You've got a QR code on your handout, which, if you scan that on your phone, will take you to a page where you can give to that fund that directly uses all of those those funds to pay off the debts in full of those Pakistani brick kiln workers. The average debt of a family it ranges from between 400 Australian dollars to 2,000 Australian dollars. To think that if even half of us in this room just gave 25 bucks each, that would be enough to free one family from lifelong bondage. Isn't that insane? Now, of course, there are many ways that we can be working to help the poor, and, and that's just one of them. But as followers of Jesus, we see Him as someone who perfectly embodies. The principles in this passage. We see Jesus, someone who saw us in our spiritual need and poverty and helplessness, our slavery to sin. And Jesus didn't stand far off, and He didn't just give handouts or band aid solutions or to try to put us somewhere out of sight and out of mind. Jesus came to be one of us, to stand in our place, to give His life for us on the cross. A costly love so that we could be welcomed into his family as brothers and sisters and so that we could be freed from bondage and slavery to sin. And Jesus has done that for us and then sent us out to be generous to others as the Lord has richly blessed us.